Hey, you guys, I want to let you know about Book of the Month, an exciting service that helps readers discover great new books while also promoting the work of emerging authors. Every month, the editorial team at Book of the Month reads through hundreds of new titles. They do the curating for you. They narrow it down to five to seven of the best new books on the market, and you get to choose your Book of the Month. To sign up, just visit bookofthemonth.com. And for a limited time, you can get your first book for just $9.99 by using the offer code CHIRP, C-H-I-R-P. I should add that Book of the Month recently launched curated audiobooks in addition to hardcovers, so members have options. You can choose one or the other, either the hardcover edition or the audiobook. And if you pick the audiobook, you can download it and listen to it right there in the Book of the Month app. My latest pick is a novel called Anita DeMonte Laughs Last by Sochil Gonzalez. It tells the story of a forgotten art star of the 1980s who died tragically and whose life and work and memory are later unearthed by an art history student. This is right up my alley. I can't wait to read it. So if you want to sign up for Book of the Month, remember, go to bookofthemonth.com and for a limited time, Get your first book for just $9.99 by using the code CHIRP, C-H-I-R-P. One more time, that's bookofthemonth.com. Use the code CHIRP and get reading. This episode is brought to you by Paramount+. Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG-13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the program. This is The Other People Show. I'm Brad Listy, and I'm in Los Angeles, California. How's it going out there? Thank you for listening. I hope you're doing okay. Don't forget to subscribe to this show wherever you listen. You can also subscribe on YouTube. Follow the show on Twitter at OtherPPL, on Instagram at OtherPPL.podcast. Same goes for TikTok, Blue Sky, all of it. Track down the show. Follow the show. Follow me. Follow me. My guest today is Annie Leontis, author of a new memoir in essays called Sex with a Brain Injury. For an outsider, if I said, you know, head injury, you're not thinking about that person's sex life. And you're not, you know, like maybe you're thinking about their relationship to work and maybe you're thinking about their relationship to their own body in terms of like vulnerability or like memory. Like usually people are like memory or like, you know, physical injury. But you're not thinking about all these layers of self that get impacted because of the isolation and the pain and, right? And I actually wrote this piece, you know, the essay Sex with a Brain Injury first because it was, you know, it's invisibility inside invisibility. Okay, that was Annie Leontis. Her new book is called Sex with a Brain Injury, available from Scribner. Sex with a Brain Injury is a memoir and essays about Annie Leontis's experiences after suffering multiple concussions sustained when she was in her 30s. This is a profound and unsettling book 
about the hidden epidemic of head trauma. It's about the surprising historical legacy of head trauma. And it is a deep exploration of the wide-ranging impacts that these kinds of injuries can have on a variety of levels, from the personal to the societal. This is a vital work of creative nonfiction that interweaves history, philosophy, and autobiography to tell a fascinating and important story. My conversation with Annie Leontis is coming up in just a bit. Don't forget to subscribe to my weekly email newsletter. It's free. You can do that over at bradlisty.substack.com. My newsletter is simple. I let you know about the latest episodes of this podcast on a weekly basis. I also share a list of links to things that I've been reading and finding interesting. So if that sounds good, head on over to bradlisty.substack.com and subscribe to my newsletter. You can also join the Other People Patreon community over at patreon.com slash otherpplpod. If you are a regular listener, if you love books and book culture, if you want to help this show continue into the future indefinitely, join the Patreon over at patreon.com slash otherpplpod. You can get gear, merchandise, a book club subscription, all that stuff. I'll even write you a postcard over at patreon.com slash otherpplpod. Today's episode is brought to you by Tin House, publisher of the novel Nonfiction by Julie Meyerson. I spoke with Julie on this program not too long ago, had a great conversation with her about this novel of hers. It is called Nonfiction. What do you think of that? A novel called Nonfiction. It is about a variety of things, including addiction, family, creativity, recovery, it's about a lot of stuff. It's a beautiful novel and a haunting novel. It's a novel that stays with you in a good way. It cuts deep. It's called Nonfiction, available from Tin House, and it's by Julie Meyerson. Go get your copy right away. Okay, so my guest once again is Annie Leontis. Her new memoir in essays is called Sex with a Brain Injury available from Scribner Books. Annie is the genderqueer author of the novel Let Me Explain You and the co-editor of A Manner of Being, Writers on Their Mentors. Her work has appeared in a variety of publications, including the New York Times Book Review, Gay Magazine, Electric Literature, The Believer, Guernica, and McSweeney's. She is a professor of writing at George Washington University. Very pleased to welcome Annie Leontis onto this program for the first time. Once again, her new book is called Sex with a Brain Injury. This is my conversation with Annie. Yeah, so I was in Davis, California. I was a visiting writer at the university and was on my bike at the time. It was. What, it was kind of a tumultuous period in my life. So I very uncharacteristically did not have a helmet on when I was riding um, and had been dealing with some insomnia. And I fell off my bike and hit my head. And I remember my head bouncing off of the pavement, actually, and uh, being very startled by the fact that that could even happen, I guess. And 
was very immediately disoriented. Like the world started to pull apart like taffy. Time felt very, very strange. I remember people walking by and I may have talked to them, but then they, they were gone. I think I lost, I don't think I passed out, but I think I lost some time. And I did have a friend, actually my co-host Lido, who, uh, co- who is my co-host for the podcast, Lit Friends With Me. He was living in Davis at the time and came and brought me to the hospital. I don't remember much of the ride, except kind of the look on his face was like, he was very freaked out. And then I got to the hospital and I, I was com- I was just like very, very confused, super disoriented. They put me through a CAT scan. The CAT scan didn't show anything because we actually, we actually can't see concussions on a CAT scan. Like the damage that happens to the white matter of the brain is like, you know, those axons are like one one hundredth of a human hair. And we just don't have sophisticated enough technology. So usually when you're getting a CAT scan, it's like, do you have a brain bleed? Will you die in the next 24 hours? And if you don't have that, they're like, okay, go home. Make sure somebody is with you when you're sleeping so you don't die in your sleep. And then you're kind of out of the clear in terms of a life or death, you know, circumstance. So I thought I was going to be good. I was like, okay, concussion, not that big of a deal. But I was really wrong. And (laughs) also... Don't think that I had all of the information. Don't think that we generally have all the information that that we should have about what it means to be concussed. Yeah, I mean that's that's a really good point, and that's something that your book like brings to the fore is how undereducated people tend to be, despite the fact that these injuries are so common, much more common, I think, than most people even realize. So for people listening a concussion is what it's when your brain which is essentially soft matter gets rattled around inside your skull which is as hard as oak right it's it's like stone basically Mm -hmm. and there's some sort of injury that happens due to a hard hit a fall is there anything yeah i mean i mean no i mean that's that's pretty great like i would say Something that alarmed me was that I read that like your brain is kind of the texture of butter. And I actually did hold a brain once or touched a brain once in this entire <laughs> investigation. But, um, you know, it it doesn't have anywhere to go. Like unlike, let's say, a knee injury, right, or an arm injury or shoulder or something, the swelling happens and it's like the, the body can expand into, into the air, right, into the environment. The swelling happens and that's normal. But your skull, like you're saying, is such, I mean, they are actually plates that move sort of like tectonic plates. So it's not quite, but it's very, very solid. And uh, so there's no room for the brain, right? It, it, and when it, when it gets shaken around like that, it slams against the walls of the skull. And even just the moving around in, in the, inside the skull can create, you know, these ruptures and tears that, are, that end up being anywhere from a mild um, to, a, to a severe traumatic brain injury. Um, Sorry, I've just lost my train of thought. Just give me one second. Uh, it'll probably come back. <laughs> well, but talking about talking about the skull being a confined space, and so that when the swelling of the brain happens after one of these injuries, doesn't have there's no place for it to go, right? I mean, yeah. that's mm-hmm. that's where you were. Yeah. That's where you were. Yeah, there's no place for it to go, and. Um, 
Yeah, I'm sorry, Brad. I've really lost that train of thought. We'll have to come back to it. Okay, <laughs> no, problem. no problem. No yeah. problem. So you go to the hospital. Mm. You have this CAT scan. You basically get cleared by the doctors. There's no bleed. Your life is not in imminent danger. You go home. You get some rest. But things are not okay. You've you've sustained what is called a TBI or a traumatic brain injury. At what point does it become evident to you in a really acute way that things are not okay and that this problem is going to persist? I mean, that's an that's a kind of an interesting question because I don't have a real answer. I I can say that there were a lot of there were like a lot of emotional and physical sequelae, like these symptoms of concussion, which include like headache, dizziness, like stuff with your vestibular system where you're like not balanced, sensitivity to light, sensitivity to sound. And those things came very hard. Like I, I remember at the time we were moving and my wife was like using one of those tape dispensers, like the packing tape. And just the sound of like the screech of the tape coming out of the dispenser was like, I could not, I mean, I couldn't be in the same room at all with it. And so that happened very, very quickly. But I also was like, oh, I'm just going to get better. I mean, I was young and healthy and like, I'm just going to get better. So I will say that that reality did not set in until after the second concussion. And then certainly after the third, I understood my life was like very different And I do remember what I was going to say, which is we think of like falls or hits as like the primary way that we people get concussed. And that's true. But even like I know a a number of people who went like skydiving, never hit their head at all. And simply like the 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 kind of whiplash right of that sport of that like activity was enough to create it. So like. It doesn't even need, I mean, that's what, that is what's so terrifying about maybe my book and this, and this research is like, they can happen pretty quickly and you don't even have to be a hit in the head. Yeah. I mean, it's definitely one of the most unsettling books that I have read in recent memory. It has that Mm. effect and it makes you as a reader, I think if you aren't already, it makes you conscious of how delicate the human brain is and how thin the line is between going through your life and being well and not really thinking about it all that much to having an injury that can have a really debilitating impact. And, you know, you talk about the second and third concussions just to give listeners a sense of timeline. Mm -hmm. You had this first concussion with a bike accident and then the second one was the car seat. Yeah. So the second one, all three of the accidents happened within a year, which was part of the trouble. But also what I didn't know then was that if you have one concussion, you're two to three times more likely to have a second. If you have a second, you're like three to four times more likely to have a third. And it just continues to escalate exponentially in that way, which is why you hear about all of these people having 13, 14 head injuries, even outside of like the hockey rink or the f- football field. like people who get in car accidents or, right? So like you just become quite vulnerable to the condition. And so for me, the second one, I was in a store. I mean, it's such a fluke thing. And I was like pretty healed from the first injury. Uh, It certainly wasn't affecting me in the way that like things affect me now. 
And I just like had my back to some shelves and there was a car seat like improperly shelved on a top, top shelf. And it fell and hit me like square in the back of my head and it was outside of my periphery. Um, and that one did probably the most damage of all of them. And then there was like another, you know, injury some month, a couple of months later as well, where like some, a pot fell off a shelf and hit me. And it's like, would that have hurt somebody that wasn't already concussed? I don't, you know, I don't know, but it, they were like three distinct ones. And then you add to that all of these sub concussive hits that just happen all the time that we don't think about. And, and uh, it just became these kind of intractable injuries. What happened when the car seat hit you? Like, what was your immediate response? Like afterwards, did you black out? Did you have a similar kind of time being stretchy or disorientation? Yeah, it was definitely, I didn't black out. And most people don't, actually only 10% of people will black out with a concussion. Because you, you kind of have to get hit in the right way, which is like the region of the brain that regulates sleeping and waking. And if you're not hit there, you're not going to pass out. But of course, it's like our cultural cue in film and elsewhere that like, oh, like head injury equals passing out equals, you know, a car wrapped around a pole or something. So it's a lot of, yeah, it's, it's similarly time being weird, a lot of like weakness and fatigue. Like I was having trouble just even moving or getting myself out of the store. And I remember distinctly going to somebody in the store and telling them that I had had this injury and like being met with immediate dis disbelief because of course people's minds go to like litigiousness and they thought I was making it up. Right. And like, it doesn't help maybe that I'm like shopping for my niece's like baby gift in sweatpants. <laughs> like I think that like all they were checking all these boxes in their head about like my agenda you know, which was to like, you know, clearly scam the store. And meanwhile, my research for this book suggests that like that cultural conception of like people are out to scam, especially people with TBI is, is rooted historically in, in the railroad industry specifically, right? Like the, the rail, you could tell me if I'm going off too much on a tangent, but Railroad industry, right? Like the, at the advent of the railroad, like we had no idea what we were doing. Human beings had never moved that fast before. There was nothing standardized, like no standard gauges and trains would actually be running on the same track in both directions. And so you'd have all these collisions. And uh, between like 1875 and 1880, um, the rate of injury goes up like, and, and car crash, um, train crash goes up like, 584%. And Charles Dickens is on one of those trains, actually. And his train goes over into this ravine, except his car doesn't. And there are these letters from him that talk about, you know, I'm not quite right. And I and it's the railway shaking. It's the railway spine. Because we were trying to get all this new language to talk about ways that we'd never been never moved before, never been injured before. And so, of course, people started to sue, right? Like they looked they looked like I looked, they looked okay, but they were uh, forever affected by these crashes. And the rail tycoons started to hire, um, you know, and the insurance companies start to hire these doctors that ca call this factitious PTSD and completely delegitimize what's basically mostly TBI injuries. Uh, and since then, you know, that creates this entire understanding and cu cultural framework for, um, 
this person is faking it. You know, this is not to be believed. This is somebody who's trying to scam the system. And we've never gotten out of it. And of course, like NFL and these other special interests, it doesn't quite help, right? It perpetuates that. But it's really like very, very rooted historically. That's interesting. And I've got to ask, did you ever think about suing this store? Because you would have grounds. The injury you sustained is significant and debilitating. Yeah. And I mean, it is complicated, right? It's like there's a lot of research around the well-being of people who sue and partly because of like all of these legal precedents that dismiss cases like this. People tend to be caught up in the system for so many years and uh, often don't win, don't win their cases. Uh, because again, like if it's not on a CAT scan and we have these cultural precedents, it's an uphill battle. Right. You know? So one thing I knew is I did not want to be in tied up with courts for years. What store were you in, may I ask? No, uh, I'd rather keep that one. Yeah, okay. keep that one close. <laughs> I'm, just, I'm imagining like a it's Walmart not... or Costco or Target <laughs> yeah. or something. What are these yeah. big box stores, you know? Yeah, I mean, it was def it was like, yeah, definitely a store that's that anyone could wander into at any which is also part of the horror of it, right? Yeah. <laughs> it's like, yeah. And car seats are heavy too. I know this. I have kids. Yeah. Like those things are no joke. So getting hit in the head with a car seat is not a laughing matter. That's a big, mm -hmm. heavy object. Mm -hmm. uh, and then the third accident was a potted plant. That was the one that you think was maybe less intense in terms of the injury. But still, at that point, it's the third one. And so I think with each successive concussion, it just kind of compounds the problem, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And so, you know, whereas with the first one, I wasn't, um, you know, I, I didn't go around in glasses all the time. I could sit on the left side of a train. I didn't have the same kind of weakness or exhaustion, you know, and this is years out. Like I still have these, these concerns, you know, these problems. Um, but you know, for, for about five years, I was kind of yanked out of my life, you know, for about five years, the acute healing period after those injuries, just like, yeah, a lot of time where I couldn't be with people or in crowds or looking at screens, you know, like I remember the first time I could go to a movie theater and watch like the new Star Wars with like the text coming at a slant. I was like, it was just a celebration just to be able to be in a movie theater, you know? Hey, I have a friend who suffered a concussion while playing hockey and was debilitated for years. It took him years to heal. That really? seems to be a fairly common, yeah. a much more common experience than I think people realize. You know, A, the prevalence of these injuries, and then B, the reality of the time that it takes to heal. But I guess on a, you know, on a more positive note, th that healing is indeed possible. It just, it takes a while for the, what, whatever, neuroplasticity, brain healing, whatever it is that's got to happen in there to happen. And in the intervening years, as you said, it was five years where you were sort of, as you put it, ripped out of your life. And I'd like for us to talk about some of the implications of a traumatic brain injury in terms of your day-to-day, -day, because mm -hmm. as you detail in the book, you're a very hardworking person, you're in a relationship, you have responsibilities, you're a writer, which is a task that feels at cross purposes with TBI, right? Totally. So you've got all these different things going on as most people do in their adult years. And can you just describe for listeners some of the ways in which this injury 
affected your life and impeded its normal functioning? Yeah, sure. And I, I mean, I should say like, you know, for every one of me, there's literally a million more every year injured and their experiences are going to look different too, right? Um, like I know a poet who can't go outside without putting on like yellow construction headphones. And I know other people who like just can't do any screens at all. I, I'm I'm grateful at this point that I I have built back a lot and can, for instance, have a job, you know, it's and that's a very demanding job. Like I have to travel to DC from Philadelphia a couple times a week. But I would say I had never been somebody who had migraines and suddenly was hit with migraines all of the time. And, you know, anything could cause it for me, like alcohol, spice, chocolate, vigorous exercise out the window, you know. And I've built, again, a lot of that back. But like, you know, last night I took a sip of wine and I was like, nope, migraine's coming on, can't do it. You know, so like there are there are good days and bad days is the thing that I had to mostly learn about this. But in the beginning, you know, it would be like, oh, I want to walk two blocks to get a bagel for my wife and myself for breakfast. I couldn't make it the two blocks. I would like sit I, because I hadn't eaten anything or like was weak that day. I like couldn't get to the two blocks or um, I would, we would get into an argument and I would not be able to control you know, like in, like the adult tools we have when we're angry, right? Like I would just be like flooded with rage or anger and not be able to, to pull it back and, or like cause and effect. My relationship to cause and effect has really changed to the point where like, I can't, you know, can't hold a couple things in my head. I used to love cooking. Can't really, can't really, not a great cook anymore. You know, so just like these, these, this new way of being. But for me, the biggest thing is like, the ongoing vulnerability, right? Like I talked about the rate of concussions and subconcussive hits, but like I, I, I'm very easily um, injured, you know, or like I, I'm a strong person. Like I kickbox and I weightlift, and I think both a strength and <laughs> a personal weakness is like I'm like you can't tell me nothing, and I just go for whatever the thing is. Like I. I take a job in another city and I get on the train and I deal with it and, you know, and it causes a lot of suffering, but it also does allow for healing, right? Like you just kind of push at your edge. So I did that a little bit, but the vulnerability has never, that has become a real constant in my life that not just, it's not just me worrying about it. It's my wife and my best friend and the people around me are like, you know, we worry about if I'm on a trolley or a subway getting jostled who's nearby that might knock into me like those things are that's a that's a constant now yeah well i mean that's another component of this is that well a couple things first of all there's the physical impacts of the injury and the ways in which it manifests for you physically the migraine headaches the vestibular issues that you might have the, any number of things there's also emotional components uh to the impacts of the injury where you maybe lack uh, an ability to self-regulate that you once had when it comes to things like anger. So that's real. And that's, those are things that I think, you know, the emotional side of it might not be something that the average person who hasn't dealt with one of these injuries or had someone close to them deal with one of these injuries, they might not realize that. And when we see people in the world who are acting out, 
it, it does make me pause. You go, oh, wow, maybe this person who is acting out is dealing with a, a traumatic brain injury. Like that's a new possibility that you wouldn't have any idea about unless somebody told you. And then in a connected way, and it's something that you just spoke to, these injuries have an impact on people around you, people close to you. And you go into detail in particular with your relationship with your wife and the way that this injury affected that relationship. Can you just talk a little bit about that for listeners? And in particular, I want to hear you talk about your wife's difficulties in understanding your condition. Because as you say many times in the book, these kinds of brain injuries are invisible. Someone can be presenting as fairly typical from the outside, but be dealing with such tumult on the inside or, or, you know, pain, whatever it is. But even for somebody close to you, there's a learning curve here. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that's partly why I wrote this book to begin with. And the philosophers call this the crisis of the conceptualized self, which is basically, you know, you, you were this person or this like, you know, we're never a single person, right? You're, you were these many selves who you conceive of as a single identity, right? A selfhood. And then all of a sudden something happens and all this, and you're not that anymore. And there are a, a handful of human experiences that, that suggest that, right? That, and, it, and I don't mean that like, I mean that in a, a way of like, something has been ruptured, there's been a s- severe trauma. And, you know, I'm thinking of like a parent that loses a child, for instance, right? Like you have wrapped your identity up in being a parent. And all of a sudden now you don't have your child. And that is that is a crisis of the conceptualized self. And, and people who suffer from TBI have that as well. And that's true, certainly for people who suffer from severe TBI and they can't, they, they can't live independently, for instance, right? But that's true all the way down the ladder to mild traumatic brain injury when you had this, these capacities you no longer have, or you just can't recognize yourself. And, you know, I, I know, for instance, someone who was like incredible at math and she just like can't do math anymore and, you know, f- feels a great loss because she, she can't connect with that anymore. There are a number of athletes like um, Catelyn Kelly, who's an Olympian, who, and there are multiple actually, especially female athletes who have uh, died by suicide since their brain injuries. And this happened particularly with Catelyn Kelly, where she was a, an, uh, supposed to be at the Tokyo Olympics uh, as a cyclist and got a concussion and just like could not recognize herself and could not deal with the loss and attempted suicide twice and then died the second time. So it's a real, you know, it's a real reckoning that is not yet culturally seen. And for me, it was, you know, as a writer, I I couldn't write. Not that I couldn't get words on the page, but I couldn't quite get the right words. And it felt like my characters were like, uh, their voices were so muffled, like they were next door at a party. And I, and I like could hear them talk, but I couldn't make it out. And I remember my wife saying like, don't worry, you still have your voice. And what she meant was you still have your soul. You know, but it took me a long time to understand that. And I appreciate your question about our marriage because, again, I think that's a big part of why I wrote this book. 
that it's so difficult to talk about and write about our present day relationships, right? Like memoirs are all about childhood (laughs) because it's, it's safe, right? It's like you're, if you, if you go too close to the source right now, you put something else in jeopardy, which is like the support system you currently have. And it's a testament to how much my wife loves me that she let me write about this. But it's also like, I felt like I would be really disingenuous if I weren't talking about how hard it was for us uh, during this entire period and how powerful the doubt was. Um, And I, I will say before I finish this thought is like, I just did my launch last week and she turned to me when we were out afterwards and was like, I think you softballed the question about our marriage. And I think you should not be afraid or want to protect me when you talk about this. And she's like, that's antithetical to the project. And cause I, I was, I mean, I was kind, I was basically like, it's hard for everybody, but she's like, that's not what happened. And I want you to be honest about it. So, you know, I, I will just say like, um, she just thought, it, I, I think like many other people who are dealing with family members who have had TBI, I think she thought it was mostly in my head and that um, it was anxiety or depression, which of course are symptoms of concussion, but not the concussion. So that gets complicated. Um, she didn't believe I had migraines because I was going to work with migraines. You know, I'd be teaching in front of a class and have a migraine and have to like literally hold a, uh, a cup of ice to my head, you know, like, um, so she just like, she had a lot of doubt. And I think a lot of that came from this, like really, um, this desire, right. This like higher self desire to just want me to be okay, you know, and, and because she couldn't see it, you know, none of us can see it. And there's also, I think, a helplessness that can cause anxiety in people close to those who are suffering illness or injury because they don't know how to fix it. They don't quite know what it is. They don't know how to fix it. And then that anxiety that they feel can sometimes manifest in impatience even. You know, it's strange how it kind of unfolds like that. But I've been there, you know, where you're just Did like, that happen with you and your friend? Um. I mean, I don't think I was in close enough proximity because he lives in another place, you know? So I think if anything, it probably happened to him with people who he dealt with more often. But what I was thinking as I was reading your book is that I should have reached out to him more Mm. because I didn't realize the intensity of what he was going through and how scary it must have been. Like, because you're wondering, like, am I ever going to heal? Am I ever going to get back to myself? Thankfully, he's healed and he's able to you know, do things, but it took a number of years. And I remember one time he visited me and he was doing like therapeutic exercises that were helping him in a vestibular Mm. way. Like I remember I had like, he would turn and I would hand him a tennis ball and then he would turn the other way, you know, just classic. Yeah. I was like, okay, well, you know, whatever you need, but he was towards the end of his recuperation at that point and was starting to come out of it. But I think that's the that's the sentiment that I have uh, after reading your book and thinking about him is that I should have had a better understanding of what he was going through. I I simply didn't, you know, so kudos to you for writing a book that helps people like me get it. And I think it's, you know, I just want to say, Brad is like, I wouldn't have gotten it before this. Like I would have had the same, I would have been, I would have had the same reaction. 
Yeah. Well, that leads me to my next question, which is you, you have a traumatic brain injury. You have multiple concussions inside of a single year. You are dealing with a host of symptoms that are debilitating and life-changing and are in some senses, I guess, escalating, right? As the concussions compound and you're exposed to different sensory input and you're sort of learning the terrain of your injury, right? You don't know this stuff until certain things happen. At what point does your own sensitivity to the prevalence of these injuries come into focus? Do you know what I'm saying? What's the aha moment for you as somebody who's suffering from a traumatic brain injury where you, you start to say, or you start to wonder at least like, well, how, how many people are dealing with this besides me? Yeah. I mean, I guess I, I was curious about that. I think as soon as I could heal enough to ask the question, I was curious about it. And I had gone to these like very uncharacteristically because I'm such a like rogue, like warrior. (laughs) I'd gone to these like support meetings and saw people around and could hear their stories. And I remember saying something like, like everything is different. Even intimacy is different. And I watched all these people nod. And I had the feeling that like they hadn't even been able to voice that themselves even maybe with like their partners or whatever and and so that kind of woke something up in me and I went to this conference called love your love your brain in I think it's called love your brain in Philadelphia run at held at Penn it's for like both medical practitioners but the public which is kind of cool and it's free and like I can't remember his name but um the an Olympian snowboarder was like one of their keynotes one year anyway i i told myself i was there for novel research quote unquote which i was at the time i guess but what i was really there was to understand what had happened to me and to understand the community and i remember sitting in um like just like one of the panel lectures and uh looking around and seeing all these people nod at like what they were hearing, right? Their experience was echoing what the lecturer was talking about, but they all looked like me, like no one, no, like, I don't know if I was expecting like eye patches or something, but like everybody just looked like me and all these people are just like silently suffering. And I like, don't think I'd reckoned with that, you know, how big the, you know, how big it is in my life and how big it is in culture and in these people's lives and in the community and I like b- burst into tears, also not very like me to cry in public. And someone passed like a napkin down the row that smelled like a ham sandwich. And I just was like, <laughs> I just was like, oh, like we are in this together. You know, like somebody, somebody shared the analogy of like every TBI is like its own planet, you know, and like we, we're on living on different planets, but we're all in the same orbit. Yeah, I mean it's and it's like it's emotional I think when you have been suffering silently and feeling isolated to suddenly be in a community of people who are suffering similarly. And you mentioned how intimacy is different. Your book is called Sex with a Brain Injury. I can imagine listeners who 
have stayed with us this long might be wondering like, well, what is it like to have sex with, with a brain injury? Like, obviously, as you said, each TBI is its own planet. So it's not the same for each individual person. Every case is different. But how did intimacy change once you've, you know, once you had sustained these injuries? Yeah. And maybe I'll just preface this by saying, you know, I'm writing out of the experience of TBI, but this is, I think, relevant to people who um, suffer from other chronic conditions, right? Like people who who have unexplained migraines or fibromyalgia or Lyme's disease, right? Like it's when I wrote that the title essay and when I was working, you know, on the project at large, I was just thinking about like all of these areas of our lives and our experience that are affected by something like this that we don't articulate or like for an outsider, if I said, you know, head injury, you're not thinking about that person's sex life and you're not, you know, like maybe you're thinking about their relationship to work and maybe you're thinking about their relationship to their own body in terms of like vulnerability or like memory. Like usually people are like memory or like, you know, physical injury. But you're not thinking about all these layers of self that get impacted because of the isolation and the pain and right. And I actually wrote this piece, you know, the essay sex with a brain injury first because it was, you know, it's invisibility inside invisibility. And my wife and I, you know, we've been together a long time, but lucky, you know, go us, we have a pretty good sex life still. And, and, but that was taken away exclusive, like pretty exclusively in that time period. Like anytime I had sex, I got a migraine and it wasn't like a level four migraine. It was like, it, it really affected me. And it meant that like, you know, the way we think about sex as like inhabiting our bodies and, you know, like sex in some ways is kind of a meditation, right? It's like disconnect from the world, be very present in this space, be connected. And all of a sudden, like that was taken too. And I sometimes have this image of like, you know, when you like hood a hawk and they are attached to like the hawk masters like cuff and they and they're trying to get you know and they're trying to fly off but they keep get, getting yanked back i mean that was my experience in my own body during this time period where like even the ways that i could feel free i i no longer had access to wow yeah and that's sad and that's tough and it's not just tough for you it's tough for your partner exactly so there's residual impact and then you feel, and I can imagine it escalates. You feel guilty, even though you shouldn't, because mm -hmm. you have an injury that was out of your, you know, wasn't something you intended to do. Yeah, I feel uh, guilty. She feels anxious. Not sexy feelings, you know. <laughs> those are like anti-sexy feelings, killing the mood. And then you're like, "Are we going to try this again? <laughs> Is this worth trying?" You know. And so it just starts to like it becomes, yeah, a bit of a cascade. Totally, totally. So you are coming to grips with this injury, you're going to this, you know, going to these meetings, having unexpected emotional experiences at these meetings where you're in community with other people suffering from TBI and you're learning about this. At what point did it become something that you thought you wanted to write about? I mean, I think I wrote that first essay thinking, I'm just going to write this and that's it. And I, and I wrote it and it kind of came out in like this like burst of flame, you know, it's just like it scorched the page and hasn't, didn't really change very much 
actually in revision, which is and, not true to my process. And this is the title essay, Sex with a Brain The title Major. essay. Yeah. It sort of came out whole in the way that like those some you know, those very rare narratives do, right? Like that's not my revision process usually, but it just was like, nope, this has to be and then I was like, okay, that was fun, I guess, and I'm I'm done with that. Like I never thought of myself I mean, I'm a novelist. I guess I started as a poet, but like I'm I was never interested in creative nonfiction. I went to Syracuse. Mary Carr was teaching nonfiction. I was like, I'm never going to do non. Why would I take this class? I'm never going to write a memoir. <laughs> Just seemed completely <laughs> like it seemed like somebody else. I'd have to be somebody else to write a memoir, and that's exactly what happened. <laughs> um, <laughs> so I, yeah, but then I realized, like, wait, but this is not the whole story. There are all these other facets, and wait, but you know, if this is happening to me, what? what does this mean for other people? Like what do we or don't we see about Hiddendry and who do we see or who don't we see in relation to TBI? You know, per, per your earlier observation about seeing somebody ranting on a, on the street and, and thinking like, oh, you know, whatever reductive thing we think about them. And now all of a sudden like, but what if this is in fact Hiddendry? So I just saw that like basically one question led to another and then I realized pretty quickly, like, this feels in some ways like, yeah, kind of an artistic responsibility to be able to, to do this work. Yeah. And, and a story that I have not heard told, I'm sure there are plenty of books about it, but it's just not something that I think is in my memory or in my view of things has not really had its moment to the degree that it probably should in the cultural conversation. So a book like this helps maybe nudge it a little bit closer to that yeah. point. And there are so many, like you say, there's kind of questions upon questions that arise. And as a reader, like, as you were just saying, I was thinking to myself, like, wow, when you see somebody who's acting out in public, normally you would think, oh, they were just born with something or they're intoxicated. Rarely does it occur to me like, oh, maybe they got hit in the head. Maybe they have a, a traumatic brain injury that they're dealing with that is affecting their mood and ability to self-regulate. Likewise, I had questions as I was reading where I was thinking about the impact of traumatic brain injuries, their specificity and individuality and how each case is different. And I, I couldn't help but wonder like, wow, so what is the relationship between a traumatic brain injury and a person's pre-existing neurology and neurochemistry. So if you have somebody who is suffering from mental illness to begin with, or has a delicate neurochemistry to begin with in some way, and then they experience a traumatic brain injury, how does that impact the impact? <laughs> Do you know what I'm saying? Like, that's a sure. question. Uh, another thing that you've touched upon, but I, I would like for us to go into more deeply is suicidality and how traumatic brain injury and suicide are so uh, clearly linked. N not something, again, that I have necessarily spent much time thinking about, but which is definitely on my radar now. So I can understand, I guess is my point, how you wrote a book about this, <laughs> because there's so much to explore here, and there's so many ways in which these kinds of injuries impact human beings and our world in ways that we just don't fully recognize. And this is this speaks to the invisibility of traumatic brain injury. And there's a line in your book that I underlined where you say, 
all of the stories we have of head injury are fiction, even when they're not, because we don't have the cultural framework to talk about them the way we do addiction or smoking. I think that gets to the heart of it. You know, we don't necessarily, we just haven't had enough conversations about it. We don't have the language. Yeah. And we don't have the models. Like when I started looking around, I mean, I think as a writer, right. And a, and a reader, I, I look to books like we all do to like help me understand myself. And, you know, Toni Morrison, God live the queen, right. She, she, uh, she says, write the book you don't see, you know, if you don't see the book you want in the, in the world, then you need to write it. Right. And what I was seeing was like self-help narratives and case studies, but nothing in the, you know, the sort of genre of work that, you know, readers like you and I go to, to understand our experience. And that was startling to me, honestly, you know, and I mean, the question you're raising about like vulnerable people who then are made more vulnerable through TBI and have these comorbidities, right? Like that's something we, because it's so invisible, we can't possibly even grapple with. But what I learned that one in two people who is housing insecure likely had a brain injury before they lost their home. I mean, that blew my mind. Right. And then thinking about how that, you know, the person who is, you know, lives in your park. Like I live next to Clark Park in West Philly and those people who live there are my neighbors too, right? Like those are your neighbors. And what you see are people who are self-medicating with alcohol, right? Or drugs or whatever. And maybe they actually are self-medicating a brain injury, right? Like a lot of people do that too. Or the fact that, you know, I learned that people who are incarcerated are seven times more likely to have a head injury before they ever get to prison because we incarcerate mental illness in this country. And because a lot of the behaviors like impulsivity or emotional ability, right. Or like aggression that TBI kind of, uh, uh, TBI like creates that creates, sorry. Um, Sorry. You're you're just like at risk of of demonstrating those behaviors if you've had a TBI, right? And then if you live in a violent place, go to a violent school. If you are one of however many young black men on a football field getting hit after hit after hit, all of a sudden the TBI creates the, you know, uh, this emotional ability, etc., and you engage in these like risky behaviors and then you are incarcerated. So those, you know, it's all of a sudden it was like this relief map for me. It was like these are all the intersections that we just do not see at all. These like sociopolitical impl implications, ramifications that go all the way up and down and are like racially determined because, you know, because we, because of how we think of young black male bodies or, right. Or because of like the way uh, violence is regulated or not regulated in like the inner city, for instance. Right. So like, yes, it's got a racialized component for sure. But there are all these levels of security and insecurity that, that are determined by and perpetuate TBI. Well, it's like, yeah, that's one of the brilliant things about your book, or maybe the most brilliant thing for me, is the way that it 
draws out the possibility that there are so many issues in our society that might be caused by a crisis that is hiding in plain sight. That traumatic brain injury is, is a key or maybe the key component to so many of these things that we are calling by other names. You know, it's like, oh, this person's mentally ill. And it's like, actually, kind of, but really what happened is they got hit in the head, maybe had some comorbidities and the, the hit in the head really exacerbated things. Or like you say, this person is flying into a rage or is uh, demonstrating suicidal behavior. And there was previously no indication that anything was wrong except, oh yeah, they got into a car accident and had a terrible head injury and everything's been different since then. You know, it just brings things into focus and makes them more understandable, but we have to be willing to see it and able to see it in order to be able to clearly understand what's actually happening. And it's, a relief to me as I read this, as I was reading this book, to know that you've recovered enough to write a book this good because the writing is is really strong. Uh, I feel like writing a book as an activity would be incredibly difficult when you're dealing with an injury like this. It's difficult. I can, I am testimony to the fact that it's difficult when you're not. <laughs> I'd be, I'd be a complete lost cause if I had a TBI was trying to do this. Like, so I'm wondering about that part of it. Like in terms of your ability to do this work, you must have had to have reached a state of pretty significant healing, right? Yeah. And it was also my lifeline. It was like, again, like I, I had trouble reading and trouble with screens. I still have trouble holding onto things in my head. But it was its own kind of physical therapy. It was like, how do you know get back to writing? How do you write? And it was also for me, you know, writing is such a calling. It's like if I'm if I'm a living, breathing person, I'm just going to keep trying to put like scratch on the page. And you know, it's a it's a life affirming impulse. And and so I yeah, again, I I know I pushed myself. I also am very grateful, you know, in my brain's capacity to heal this much. And that writing this book, like both was a way for me to recover and to heal. And it was also a way to feel alive again, you know, in the way that like as a writer is essential. Um, I would love to tell the story of Markel Taylor if you are open to that. Yeah, no, I mean, that's this is tied to what we were talking about with respect to incarceration and traumatic brain injury and how, like you said, I forget what the exact numbers are, but a lot of the people who are incarcerated experienced a traumatic brain injury prior to incarceration. And Markel Taylor, you can explain to listeners who he is, but this is part of his story. So Markel Taylor uh, is a Denver businessman, carceral justice advocate, and actually served 20 years of a sentence. Uh, he had a history of addiction and uh, I think like armed robbery specifically in terms of like criminal activity or like theft. Right. And I was introduced to Markel through Dr. Kim Gorgans, who is a researcher out of Denver university. She has an amazing Ted talk actually on head injury and the carceral justice system. Uh, sorry. That's not the word I meant to say. The uh, 
prison industrial complex. And I highly recommend if you're interested, like she's amazing. It, it will blow your mind. It blew my mind. And I reached out to her and realized like I needed to write a piece about this. Like how do we not understand and how is not policy driven by this awareness, right? Of like people who are in prison are seven times more likely to have had a head injury. So I very quickly got connected to Markel and I just thought I was going to interview him and be like, okay, tell And then we hit it off so well and honestly are like quite close now, right? Like two people with very different life experiences. He grew up in Flint, Michigan. He had a head injury at age nine. His father was a Vietnam War vet who self-medicated. He lost both parents very, very young and had all these comorbidities, was tending to himself through drugs and addiction. And, you know, I'm an immigrant. I live on the East Coast. I'm a white person. I'm a queer person. Like, we just, our paths would never have crossed in this way. And when we started to build the piece, we realized, I mean, I realized pretty quickly, like, it went from interview to, like, maybe I'll do a feature on this guy to, no, we have to collaborate on this. Like, we became co-authors in writing what's partly Mark Hill's life story, right? And partly integrating a lot of research from Dr. Kim Gorgans and other people to really start to crystallize our awareness and understanding of TBI and the prison system. And the thing about Markel is, you know, his last crime was robbing a Papa John's. And I talk about it in the essay, and and he talks about it too in the essay, Um, just like kind of how far gone he was, you know, how deep in and how hurting and just like how intractable things his injuries were. And then from inside the prison system, he, first of all, is identified by his lawyer as someone who likely had a head injury and trauma because, you know, he just got out of prison three months ago after serving years. How is he right back here? And they put him in the men's transition unit, which is a an innovative uh, treatment in in Denver's penitentiary system that doesn't really, I don't think it exists really anywhere else. Maybe it does. I'm not sure, but it's not very common. So while he's there, he meets Kim Gorgans, he gets treatment, he does therapy, EMDR. He says EMDR changes his life. What is EMDR? It's, I can't remember what the initials stand for, but it's a kind of therapy that's like somatic therapy, like in both your mind and your body. And it helps build those connections. I I got a kind of parallel therapy called craniosacral therapy, which without, I would not have been able to write this book for sure. I'm 100% sure of that. So he gets this therapy. And so while in prison, writes a law that ensures that people in Colorado get neuropsychological screenings before they're about to be sentenced to prison. And now, you know, that's been passed as a law. It's now a pilot program in the uh, Den... um, What's the prison? It's uh, I'll have to remember the name of it, but it's a women's prison in Colorado. They chose a women's prison because the rates for female prisoners is like astounding. It's like if you're incarcerated as a female prisoner, you likely had a head injury in the last year. Like ninety-seven to ninety-nine percent of females who are who commit crime and are sentenced to crimes 
likely had a head injury in the last year, many of them at the hands of their uh, family members or spouses, right? So I think Markel is this amazing, I mean, first of all, he's just, he like teaches me how to be human, right? It's like this, this kind of love that he has for people and for changing the world after the world has mistreated him so badly, first of all. And then the fact that, um, you know, he, he indicates, he sort of proves what can happen when instead of punishing TBI and chronic conditions and mental health, we offer a path of treatment and support, you know, and now he's doing like all this work actually with suicide prevention out in Colorado. Well, I mean, it, this gets back to this issue of invisibility. Like how, how astonishing is it that once they start doing these neuropsych evaluations of people who are going in to be incarcerated at this women's prison that in the nineties, like it's not just like one out of three, which would still be high in mm-hmm. the nineties that yeah. speaks to its invisibility and its prevalence mm-hmm. and to how acute of an issue it is when it comes to other like larger societal problems, connected problems. Right. So mm-hmm. I just, uh, I feel like this is closer to the beginning of a conversation that we're going to be having about this. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you talked a bit, a bit ago about starting out by writing the title essay of this book and how it kind of came out in a hot, uh, a hot flash of creative energy, like a burst. And then realizing that the book that you wanted to read about this stuff didn't exist and feeling a sense of creative responsibility about it. The book that you have landed on is I think fairly described as a memoir and essays. And it does so many things that I love uh, in creative nonfiction. First of all, there's a great sense of movement and propulsiveness. It really is a book that you can't stop turning the pages. It keeps you moving. You don't get bogged down or have that feeling of that, that I'll sometimes get where I'm like, okay, this is getting really academic. This book definitely gets into the weeds, but you keep it moving. Uh, it also teaches the reader so much. I felt like I was really learning a lot. And one of the things that I want to highlight is the way that in learning about TBI, it not only reorients a person in terms of their understanding of the present, but it also reorients people in terms of their understanding of the past. So you do these great biographical sketches of historical figures who suffered traumatic brain injury and were likely affected by it in ways that are not often discussed. So for example, Harriet Tubman, Abraham Lincoln, Henry VIII, and then I guess more recently, the historical figure known as known as George Clooney. Uh, <laughs> but all of these people, I mean, like, like let's just uh, let's just talk about Harriet Tubman as an example, because I think most people's cultural like cursory understanding of of her is like, oh, Underground Railroad helped free the slaves, should be on the twenty dollar bill by now. But you know, Trump put a stop to that or whatever it is. That's about as much as people probably have in their brain about Harriet Tubman did not realize that she suffered a traumatic brain injury as a young person, right? That like that mm-hmm. stayed with her. And it was what, at the hands of one of her, uh, you know, what do you call it? Captors like the, that, uh, yeah. that injured well, her. She, she, she was 12 when this happened and she was known then as Araminta. And she was on like a nearby property with permission, but 
there had been an enslaved person who ran away and the overseer threw this like metal weight. It was like a store or something. And the kind of metal weight you use to like determine the pound of something, like a pound of flour or whatever. And he throws that weight and he misses and he hits her instead. And she has these, you know, she has debilitating migraines immediately, but is still sent out to work and trap muskrats. And, you know, there's no rest, you know, for an enslaved person, of course. And she has these, you know, she has terrible insomnia and she learns she's ultimately going to be like sold off and is terrified at that possibility, particularly because of her injuries and decides to walk the like 90 miles to Philadelphia to escape. And and then establishes, right, the Underground Railroad. Uh, what people don't, you know, what I found fascinating in the reading of, of, of her experiences, she would get these like visions from God that were also coinciding with these migraines. And I, it's just like, ama- it's amazing to think of like an enslaved person who is black in this time period going through what she's going through. And then to add these layers of like physical pain, invisible pain, and the right, the like bravery of wanting to rescue people, even though she is so um, vulnerable herself. Right. And even up until the end of her life, like she got surgery for the migraines. It didn't work. Uh, But she, you know, she she kept going and she like opened up. uh, She was like training young black entrepreneurs in the north and like opened up like a I think it was like a cafe washing service. (laughs) Like She was just like still do. And and then opens up a retirement home for people. Um, But it you you do have to ask the question, does this person change the course of history and these people's lives without having been injured so badly, which is like such a human question. It's like such a beautiful question, you know? Yeah. It's like the the kind of like stronger at the wounded parts. Like at least some of us, you know, sometimes our wounds are the source of our strength and uh, she seems to be one of them. And another thing that is related that comes to mind for me is the mystery of the Mm. human brain like we don't know a thing like i have a son who's got uh disabilities and a complicated neurology mm. and i've talked about this on the show you know mm-hmm. several times but one of the things you learn when you're dealing with medical issues like this is the limitations of medicine uh it's not until you come into contact with this that you realize how inexact it all is especially when it comes to something like the brain even the most knowledgeable experts in the field are very limited in the grand scheme of things in terms of their understanding of the brain. And then you can even get metaphysical about it and think about the, well, okay, there's the brain and then there's the mind. And are they the same thing or are they different? And how does the self factor into these things? Like these are areas of deep fascination for me. And what what is it like for you to grapple with that for your son? Um, if, you know, the invisibility of it or like people's uh, perception of it. It's hard. I mean, I think at some point you have to get to a place of acceptance, but even acceptance is hard. I think it's situational. I think it depends on who we're dealing with and what their response is. I think it has to do sometimes with his behavior. 
because it's new to me too. And I'm going, okay, well, what, what's happening here? You know, because it's all so specific. My wife and I will often say like, there's just one, you know, like every person is a special snowflake. But I think for somebody who's got a very uh, unusual, I guess, uh, neurology, it manifests. And so you have, I think, personality, behaviors, all of it that are materializing in a way that feels really unique. And it's really cool in a lot of senses, you know, his sense of humor is so specific and (laughs) there will be also like really crazy, especially long-term memory things that happen with him where we'll just be like driving around in the car and he'll be like, Hey, do you remember like three Christmases ago when we were sitting by the Christmas tree and he'll just start talking and it's, he's remembering something incredibly clearly that of course has totally gone from my mind and I have like some pieces of it and it's just in there somewhere. So Mm. it's a, do you feel like you've been like, have you located another self or a higher self as a parent, as a result of this? I think so. I mean, I think you, I mean, I don't want to sound, uh, self aggrandizing, but I just think that it's a challenge that you have to meet as a parent to the best of your ability. And it just asks more of you emotionally and spiritually. And so in that sense, like you have no choice. It's not like I did anything super heroic. I'm just trying to meet the moment and not always succeeding, by the way. It's not like I'm passing with flying colors every single day, but I don't think I would be, I I wouldn't have to access those depths most likely in the absence of the situation. So it's sort of like the same thing with Harriet Tubman or with you, you know, like you have this, this wound that is debilitating and has caused you pain, physical, emotional, and otherwise, but yet in some ways it's the source of your strength. So it's complicated, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? That's life. Yeah. And you know what? I think like each of us, if we stick around long enough is going to get some variation of this. Yeah. If it's not, uh, if it's not a traumatic brain injury or having a child with a complicated health situation, it'll be something else. Like life will get you too, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, and we yeah, just it's a little to... bit like you, you wouldn't wish this on someone else, but you also wouldn't give it back in a way, you know? Right. I mean, you have that thought. I've actually had that. It's a thought game. It's like, wow, if I could like wave a magic wand and give my child quote unquote, typical neurology and full physical and intellectual abilities and all the ways that like a quote unquote, typical kid would have the knee jerk answer would be like, well, yeah, of course you would do that. You want your child to have But if I did that, the child that I know is gone Mm -hmm. because the child that I know is inextricable from those Mm -hmm. differences and those unique qualities. And that would be profoundly sad. It would be a profound loss to not have that particular Mm -hmm. combo. And so I think the answer is ultimately no, it's not, or, or at least like it's a much, much harder question that I think I gave it credit for, or most people would give it credit for, just like looking at it in a kind of cursory way, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it's interesting. And I feel like there's an alchemy at work in this book that I so admire, where you are going into the tough stuff of your life, writing a book that you probably never expected to write <laughs> in a form that you never even had an interest in writing. Yeah. But like you say, you're a different person and you've taken this tough stuff and kind of spun it into gold and told a story that's vital and has real cultural import 
and is also, and this is a part of it that we've touched on with respect to the the parts of the book that deal with uh, your relationship with your wife, the the erasure chapters where there are certain mm-hmm. aspects of, or certain parts of the conversations that you've had with your wife that are redacted, which I quite mm-hmm. liked. <laughs> <laughs> um, but also you go into personal history, family history. You, I, I feel like these aspects of yourself, you know, you mentioned that you're an immigrant. You had a kind of hard scrabble upbringing. Your mother and father were kind of put into an arranged marriage back in Greece, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Your mother is an addict and mm-hmm. closeted, at least for a time, lesbian, mm-hmm. and was deep, and then had babies of which you are one, <laughs> but was deeply <laughs> unhappy in this forced situation and fled it. And so a complicated upbringing. Mm-hmm. And I love the choice of including that stuff in the book because it's related. <laughs> Even though like TBI and like a, a car seat falling on you at the store or whatever could feel like it's really far afield, how, how could they possibly be <laughs> disparate, right? Mm-hmm. It's all part of the story that you're telling because what you're ultimately telling is a story of your reckoning with yourself in all of its ephemerality and complexity. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm wondering if that was that, if that stuff was always there, was that always part of the plan to write about mom and dad and your personal history or did it, was there a certain point at which you realized that the book needed that? Hmm. You know, I, I think the research hit first, right? Like, I realized, you know, in my reading that um, what we're starting to understand about addiction is that it looks very much like brain injury. And that is also very, very new. Like we have, we're only starting to understand or unpack that again, because we think of these things as like very, very separate, right? But like, it makes sense on a certain level, like damage to the brain is damage to the brain. Like we only have so many regions or organs in the brain and we only have so many um so many ec- externalizations of damage like pain or disability or whatever so it makes sense that it's all in that way connected but you know when i read that when i realized the implications of that in my own life i just was like stunned and i remember being like on a street corner in philly when when i reckoned you know to use your word with that. And I just was like, I was like, I just like froze. I just couldn't believe that, you know, this person, my biological mother who had had a very complicated relationship to because of her addiction, because of her reticence and sort of her just, you know, I think she would have liked to have wanted to be a mother, but I don't think she wanted to be a mother. And she certainly, you know, at best, I was sort of a parentified child, you know, and I just was like, I can't be this person growing up. And even like queerness was conflated and wrapped up in that. And I mean, I was growing up in the 80s when like, I mean, part of my entire body of work and and this book, in my experience, is like resisting erasure, because now we're like, oh, we've always been cool with the queers, but that's not true, right? And so many of us walk around with the lifetime of experience of what that, what that, you know, the reality of that. And so 
in in the cultural and familial fabric, it was like a queer person is an addict, is a nobody, is a low life, is you know. And so I had all I had these ideas, and she sort of proved it, right? Because she was like absent or erratic or you know, she's, she was not somebody, she was not motherly. Um, but then I get these head injuries and the universe playing its jokes is like, but now you are more like her, right? Like even beyond the queerness, which like is, you know, it is, it, it's just like, you know, it's a part of my life I'm very much embracing of, but it took a while for that. Right. But like to, to have a damaged brain and in common with a parent that you were trying so hard to flee from. Right. It's like a real universe test. Yes. <laughs> and it, it forced me to become more elastic and empathetic. I was going to say, you see your mother more clearly, whether you yeah. want to or not. But I like you totally. said, how, how can you not have deeper empathy when you share an injury essentially with yeah. somebody, even somebody with whom you have a contentious or difficult relationship like that will tend to soften things. And it's yeah. part of the heart of the book. I mean, I think it allows the reader, it, it gave me a fuller sense of your humanity. And I think in the absence of that part of the story, the book would be more academic, mm. more strictly academic. Mm -hmm. So there's a real, that. yeah, it's a real great personal narrative component to this book. And I just loved reading it. And it, like I say, it's one of the more unsettling, scarier <laughs> books that I've read in recent memory. It sort of re reminds me in terms of the reader experience of that book. Uh, what was it called by Richard Preston? It was about Ebola. It was the first time I ever read about Ebola. Oh. <laughs> do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, it's like the yeah. opening, the open, is it Richard Preston? It was the opening chapter where there's a guy was sick with Ebola on an airplane. And I was just like, mm -hmm. oh my God. I think it's, mm -hmm. you know, I think Stephen King called it like the most terrifying thing he'd ever read. <laughs> <laughs> So I'm not saying that this rises to the level of Ebola on an airplane, but I'm just saying that it really was an eye opener and it made me grateful for my cranium and protective of it. And I guess like a good place for us to part company is to just ask you how you're doing now. Like what is life like for you today? I, I'm trying to get a sense of timeline too. Like how many years removed are we from this year of the three concussions? Yeah. I mean, I'm, those were like between 2016, 2017, a 12, 12 month period. So I'm, you know, I'm, I'm pretty far out. I, I appreciate the question and, um, you know, I, and I, uh, am grateful for the question. I mean, for me, it's like, I now know how to better take care of myself. I know I need craniosacral once a month or, you know, things start to get a little, untenable. What, what um, is, what is craniosacral? Like? Oh God, I wish I had like the brains to explain it, but essentially it's a kind of body work that palpates the cranium. It looks, if you were to walk into the room, it would just look like I'm laying on a, lying on a flat surface and the practitioner is just holding my head. Like it looks like nothing, but it, it feels like dental work sometimes, <laughs> but it's also like it helped me heal and recover, I think at all and more quickly than I would have. Um, it's not cheap, that's for sure. Uh, and it's an hour, and my practitioner is an hour away, so I have to drive there and drive back. Um, I'm sure insurance so, could as insurance cover this. <laughs> insurance does not cover. Uh -huh. <laughs> Unless there's like uh, there's one insurance that the CEO swears by craniosacral, so he's covered it. 
I don't know if it's Aetna, but anyway, that's like, yeah, but mostly it's not covered. So it's a lot of like a lot more, many more measures to take care of myself than I otherwise would have. And also to know like how to pace myself, how to, you know, or like, you know, knowing that like, um, I'm going to have to push really hard and then crash over the weekend. Right. So it's just, it's a lot of calibration and I'm grateful that I, I know the medicine I have to take for the migraines that I didn't have that knowledge of in, you know, five years ago, I have a good practitioner. I have family that's aware and supportive. I mean, the great thing about writing a book like this is that people around you are conscious, you know, of your experience. And I, that's a gift for me in my life that other people with chronic conditions don't have, but I'm also hoping this can in some ways be a tool for, right? So I'm lucky in that this is something I, I live with, you know, and live it being the operative word. Well, I'm glad that you are doing well and finding ways to take care of yourself and very happy that you did all the hard work that it must have taken to write this book and appreciate you giving me an hour of your time on your busy book tour. And uh, Oh, this was great. I really appreciate it. Well, I wish you well. Take care of yourself. <laughs> yeah, you too. Take care of you and your son and your family. All right, Annie. Thank you so much. Thanks, Brett. All right, there we have it. That was my conversation with Annie Leontes. Her new memoir is called Sex with a Brain Injury, available now from Scribner. Annie is on the internet at AnnieLeontes.com. Follow her on social media. She is on Twitter and Instagram. One more time, the book is called Sex with a Brain Injury, available now wherever books are sold. Go get your copy right away. Don't forget to subscribe to The Other People Show wherever you listen to podcasts. You can also subscribe on YouTube. Follow the show on social media, TikTok, Instagram, Twitter, and Blue Sky. You can subscribe for free to my email newsletter over at bradlisty.substack.com and you can join the Other People Patreon community at patreon.com slash otherpplpod. Help keep this show going into the future. If you have a moment and you would be so kind, I would appreciate it if you would rate this podcast wherever you listen. So Apple Podcasts, Spotify, whatever it is, give the show a rating, write a little review if that's an option. It helps the show find new listeners. If you would like to get some other people apparel, a t-shirt or a sweatshirt, you can do that at otherppl.com. You can also subscribe to the Other People Book Club at otherppl.com. Get a new book delivered to your door every 30 days. I interview book club authors on this podcast. Last but not least, a quick plug for my latest book. It is a novel. It is called Be Brief and Tell Them Everything, available in trade paperback, ebook, and audiobook editions. I narrate the audiobook, so check it out if that sounds good. It's called Be Brief and Tell Them Everything. So, coming up on Wednesday, I will be in conversation with author Christina Cook. Her debut novel is called Broadupsy, available from Catapult had a great conversation with Christina, so stay tuned.